take our Bibles and let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 17 this morning. Matthew chapter 18, verses 14 to 17. I want to introduce it uh, this way. It is one thing to claim that you're the Messiah. It is quite another issue to prove that you are the Messiah by your actions. The Bible tells us that there have already been false messiahs that have gone into the world, and as we approach the end of days, especially in the tribulation period, there will be lots of people claiming to be the Messiah. And Jesus, the true Messiah, warned us, just because you hear a report that there's a Messiah somewhere, don't go out in the desert to see him, and don't go into the inner city to see him, because when I come back, everybody will know. Uh, you, won't, you have to be told about it by somebody else. So he warned us not to do that. But there's been a lot of people claim that they were the Messiah, and they are not. There's only one, and that is Jesus. Uh, we learned from some people that studied it, and I'll tell you that in just a minute, that Jesus fulfilled... 300 prophecies from the Old Testament in his ministry. So here's a guy that ministered about three years, and in that, he actually uh, went through and fulfilled 300 prophecies that were mentioned about him in the Old Testament. Now, a man by the name of J. Barton Payne, kind of the father of, if you will, uh, covenant theology, which we don't hold to, we hold to dispensational theology, but J. Barton Payne said, Jesus is alluded to, and this is different than the next guy, but alluded to in some 574 verses in the Old Testament. Payne was an Old Testament scholar. And he said 574 verses allude to the Messiah from the Old Testament. Another man by the name of Alfred Edersheim, who is also an old-time theologian, He found what he says are 456 Old Testament verses that referred directly to Messiah. So one is alluded to Messiah. This is referring directly to Messiah or or his times 456 times. Now, what that means is that the Old Testament is just soaked with information about the Messiah and about Jesus and what's going to happen in his day. And the issue here is that uh, nobody else in history has ever fulfilled even eight of the requirements that Jesus fulfilled in their lifetime. Jesus perfectly, if you will, uh, fulfilled all the prophecies given in the Old Testament about the coming of Messiah. Jesus perfectly fulfilled those. Now, what are the chances of that, that one man in their lifetime can fulfill even eight of those 300 prophecies? And that's what's at stake here. What are the chances of one man fulfilling, humanly speaking, uh, that would be impossible? I want to read something here from a study that was done. And uh, it is Professor Peter Stoner, who was chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College. And he was the chairman of the Science Division at Westmont College. In his book, which is entitled Science Speaks, Professor Stoner outlines the mathematical probability of one person in the first century fulfilling just eight of the most clearly understood as messianic and straightforward messianic prophecies. In other words, what are the chances of one person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies about Jesus Christ in the first century? 
And uh, because of some work that Josh and Sean McDowell did, they, uh, uh, they quote Stoner in their book about this issue. Their book is Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and I would recommend that to you if you have people that doubt Jesus is the Messiah and say there's no proof that he's the Messiah. Uh, get, this, uh, get this book for them, Evidence That Demands a Ver Verdict by Josh McDowell, and let them read that. And what we find there is that the chance of any man having lived down to the present time and fulfilling all eight of those prophecies is one in ten to the 17th power. Now, that's a number that's a little beyond what I even know. What, what, what do you do after a quadrillion? I don't even know what to do with that. But 10 in the seventh, to the 17th power, which basically means scientifically in every other way, it is impossible for somebody to even fulfill those. It's impossible that one man could do 300 unless he's the son of God, unless he is the Messiah, and he is the true uh, one that God sent into the world, and Jesus Christ did that. That ought to give you uh, some confidence and hope in the truth of the Bible. That's, that's amazing that that, that that is true, and it is. Well, today Jesus is in the midst of fulfilling prophecy again, and specifically uh, this prophecy, if you want to look at it with me in Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus fulfilled prophecy uh, all about him in the Old Testament. This is just one place. Uh, you know this as the passage of the suffering servant. And I'm going to read probably verses 4 and 5, but in, in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, this is one of the prophecies that God said the Messiah will fulfill. And it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore. Speaking about the Messiah, the one that would die for the sins of his people. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. He means in his body. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, we thought he was a nobody, and to God he was everybody. And we thought that God was actually punishing him when God was actually working through him. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And there's the gospel message in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ fulfilled that. Well, let's go back to our Matthew passage in Matthew 8, verses 14 through 17, and uh, see what the Lord has for us there. It says this, when Jesus came into Peter's home, so where had Jesus been just recently? He was up on the mountain doing the Sermon on the Mount. He'd come down, he ran into a centurion, uh, a Gentile centurion who sent some people to get him because he had a slave that needed to be healed, and he did that. Jesus did that remotely. He makes it back to Capernaum, which is his hometown. We saw some stuff about Capernaum one time up here on the screen well, a couple weeks ago. We know a little about, about that town. And he's going to Capernaum because that's where Peter's home is, and that's where Jesus had uh, a temporary residence when he happened to be in the area. So if, if you had to look at anywhere on the, on the map in ancient Israel and say this was Jesus' hometown, you'd have to say Capernaum, although he spent very little time there. Uh, and was out doing ministry. But when Jesus came to Peter's home in Capernaum, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. Now, the reason he saw her is because some people told him about her, and we'll see that in a minute. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. That is packed with theological truth that we need to understand. Why does God heal people? Why does God bother 
to heal people. And here it answers that question for us. Going into verse 16, when evening came, uh, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. Uh, that word in the text is really demonized. And he cast out the spirits, so those are demons or uh, evil spirits, whatever you want to call them, ghosts or whatever, and cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And this is where Isaiah 53, 4 comes in. So Matthew is saying, hey, folks, here's what Jesus is out doing. If you will look back in the Old Testament, Isaiah the prophet said, he himself took our infirmities and carries away our diseases. This was prophesied about Messiah. If you care to look, Jesus is doing that. Jesus is performing exactly what Isaiah said. So you should pay attention to Jesus because he is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. Now, I, all the Gospels are going to do this over and over and over and say, this is what the Old Testament said. This is what Jesus did. Uh, this is what it was prophesied of him to do, and this is what Jesus did. 300 times Jesus fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament, which is mathematically impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. So having looked at that, let's go back and let's talk a little bit about this. Verse 14, Jesus came into Peter's home. He saw his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick in bed with a fever. He touches her on the hand, and the fever leaves her. And she gets up, and she waits on Jesus. In other words, served him. Uh, the word in the text is serve. All right, so in verses 14 and 15, and that's how we're going to divide our text this morning, we learn that Jesus heals people and empowers them for service. That's what's important. Jesus heals people and empowers them for service. Why does Jesus even care that you get over a physical ailment? Why is Jesus available to help you get well when you're sick? What does Jesus want from you? And that issue is answered in this text, and you can see it there. We'll get to it in a minute. First, in this particular passage, we've seen the healing of a leper. Jesus comes down off the mountain. A leper makes his way to Jesus, going through a crowd that he wasn't supposed to be around. He falls on his knees, and he says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. So he had, he had the right approach to Jesus, if you're willing. God doesn't heal people. He's not willing to heal. God heals people when he is willing to heal them. But this guy knew that, and I don't know where he got that theology, but it's good. And he said, if you're willing, and the Lord says, I am willing. And in your case, I'm going to heal you. He reaches out and touches a leper, which you're not supposed to do because that makes you unclean. But it didn't make Jesus unclean. And he healed that leper. And then on the way down to the town there, a Gentile military commander who had paid to rebuild most of their synagogue in Capernaum uh, sent some servants to ask Jesus to heal another one of his servants. So he's already done that. And today we have a woman that Jesus is going to heal and then multitudes of other people. And we'll get to that in a minute. In ancient Israel, these people represent three groups that were marginalized in the society. In other words, looked down on by other people. They happened to be those who lacked status among the Jews. That was the leper, that was a, a woman, and that's a Gentile. All of them did not have status and were looked down upon, but Jesus took his time to go out of his way to take care of people nobody in his country even cared about. Some in Israel would have considered it shameful for Jesus now uh, to touch a woman's hand for whatever reason. And some women, uh, according to the Bible, even accompanied Jesus and his disciples 
when they traveled about teaching and preaching. That's unheard of. You didn't see rabbis of the day gathering women into their uh, social group or into their teaching group as students. Uh, that was forbidden. That's, that's not the way it's going to be. But Jesus Christ had women that accompanied him, and some came and went and prepared meals for them and served them and helped them in the ministry while he was out ministering. You see, uh, Jesus has always treated women in a way that the world hasn't treated them. And uh, some people thought this was shameful for Jesus to do, but he did it because he's more interested in the truth. So some women were accompanying them on their mission again, considered shameful, but Jesus is not a respecter of men. Jesus is a respecter of God and how God looks at things. And uh, he did it that way, but Jesus never sinned. Those who have little are highlighted in these passages as those most open to Jesus. Those who have little are highlighted here as those who are most open to Jesus. Uh, we have a problem in our country and around the world that's always been a problem. And the problem is those who are wealthiest have uh, usually the least to do with Jesus because they depend on their money. They don't depend on Jesus. They've got the money to pay for the surgery. They've got the money to pay for the dental work. They've got the money to build a new house if one is destroyed. And, and that's where their faith is. That's where their trust is. I've got the money to do it. I don't have to worry about Jesus. And they are blind, according to the Bible. Uh, we find in the Bible that those who are little in the eyes of society are highlighted as people who have a way of believing Jesus when others won't. The rich were often convinced by their personal wealth that they don't need Jesus in any way. Well, what I want to do at this point is I want to stop and I want to go to a couple of parallel passages in the Synoptic Gospels, and that means uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they, they have a, a synthesis together. They all wrote Gospels, but they didn't all write the exact same thing. That's because Mark is a different person than Matthew, for sure, and Luke is different than either of them. And when you're in a group of people and you're watching an event, you may pick out certain things that are important to you, and somebody else may pick out other things, and they write about that, and you might say, well, somebody's lying because it isn't exactly the same. No, they're not lying. Uh, they just are bringing out different things that happen that fit the argument of their book that they want to make for Jesus. So I want us to get our, our uh, hands around that and our minds around that and look at these two passages. Mark chapter 1, verse 29, and we're going to go down to verse 34. So this is Mark, what he understood and what he saw uh, or what was told to him, depending on what we're talking about in the text, and what did he see? And it says this, um, I mean, did I tell you that I was in Mark 1, 29? I think so. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon is Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. Now Matthew didn't say that. Matthew said Jesus saw her. He skipped the part about people telling people, uh, people telling Jesus about this. He just said Jesus saw her. It doesn't mean one's right and one's wrong. They both happened, and they're both accurate. So she was lying sick with fever and immediately spoke to Jesus. If you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, we had a picture of Capernaum as it is today with the ruins, and you know that the, the rocks that are, are around the synagogue, except for the foundation, are, are newer rocks. The foundation rocks were there when Jesus was there. And right next to that, to the south, between the synagogue and the Sea of Galilee, 
there was this great big flat oval oval shaped dome. Now, of course, that's not original. The Catholics built that over that that site because underneath it is Peter's house, and they made a shrine out of it, and they want to preserve it. But that place right next to the synagogue, so you walk out of the synagogue, it's it's not very far to Peter's house. And he finds the mother-in-law there, and people tell him, and uh, she's sick. Verse 31, and he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she served or waited on them. Now, you go back to our text, and it says she waited on Jesus. Here it says she waited on all of the disciples and Jesus. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed or demonized, okay? So Jesus is now going to show that he has authority over spiritual and physical issues in life. And it says, And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Some people say, I don't believe in demons, and then I remind them that, uh, well, that's interesting because Jesus believed in the reality of demons, and he dealt with them. So let's go to Luke chapter 4 and see what Luke does with this. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 38 down to 41, and it says this, talking about Jesus. Then he got up, and he left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's home. Again, Peter. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. Well, now we know it's a high fever, not just any fever. And they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever. Didn't tell us that in other places. He rebuked it like it was something that could be rebuked. Remember we talked about the authority of Jesus Christ to save people, to uh, make them well? Here's the authority of Jesus Christ in rebuking this fever. And it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. They knew that he was the Christ. And he said, Stop yelling it out. Why? Jesus spent his ministry trying to keep from being killed before the Father brought the cross. And he was trying to keep his ministry low-key, which, which he was not doing a very good job of, because he told people, don't tell somebody that I did this. They couldn't wait to run around all over town and tell everybody they knew, and they did. And uh, it just put a lot of pressure on Jesus, and sometimes they wanted to kill him before his time. God protected him, but that's what we see Jesus doing in these places. Well... In these three passages, some differences are the emphasis that each puts on the story, with Matthew being the most focused on Jesus. The other said she got up and waited on all the guys there, the, the disciples and, and Jesus. Matthew said she got up and served Jesus. He wants you to look at Jesus. The disciples are just uh, in the periphery of the whole thing, and, and he's not really concerned about them. Mark and Luke say that others asked Jesus to help Peter's mother-in-law. That doesn't change anything about what Matthew said. He's still correct. They also emphasize that she, was, that she was healed. She got up and served them, which I just talked about, and Matthew says that she served Jesus. Matthew's focusing in on that. Both viewpoints are true. 
Matthew is emphasizing certain things about that evening and that night, and the others were emphasizing other things for the purpose of their book, and he is working to prove Jesus is who he says he is. And also, just to look at the way things really are even today with a bunch of reporters, they see the same event, but seldom is every event described in every situation. Not everything is told about every situation. So this guy says this, the other guy doesn't mention it. Well, does that mean this guy's lying? No. I'm trying to build your confidence in the text because there are differences in the way the synoptics present the same story, but there are good explanations for that. And I also want you to know that Jesus has power over physical and spiritual ailments that people have. That's what we're trying to see because Isaiah is going to be proven right about Jesus and Jesus will be proven right for following Isaiah and what Isaiah predicted. Luke also emphasizes that she had a high fever. This is one sick lady. and Without Jesus' intervention, she probably wasn't going to live. So Jesus, in verse 14, came to Peter's home, wasn't far from where they were at the synagogue in Capernaum, and he saw Peter's mother-in-law, because some people said, hey, come, come and see her, she's sick, uh, with fever. That meant that she was living with Peter, and that's how they normally took care of uh, their older folks. They brought him into their home. And some things that we need to glean from this is that that also means that Peter was married, and uh, most of the apostles were. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5, uh, some people were talking about Paul and how he got his support and why he didn't have a wife with him. Paul, I don't think, was, was married at all. But Paul says to the people in Corinth, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife while the rest of the apostles and the brethren of the Lord do and Cephas does or Peter does? Peter, uh, he's saying, look, all the rest of the apostles take their wives on their mission trips. I, I have a right to bring one if I want to, don't I? And then he says, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? even as the rest of the apostles? Yes, you do. He says, or do only Barnabas and I not have the right uh, to refrain from working? You give them gifts to keep in ministry. We, we have to work our way through. Paul is saying, you're not treating us the right way. And he points that out. And there we learn that Peter definitely was married. And here we see as a mother-in-law, he had to be married for that. So the apostles were married. They had families. And sometimes the women went with them on their ministry trips and on their preaching trips. Lots of times they didn't. And so that became a model for mission outreach when I was a kid. That's how it works. Some of the people would say, I'm going to put my kids in a, in a school in America, and we'll see on our furloughs every three years, and these kids grew up without their parents. Or sometimes they did it on the mission field because they say Jesus' mission is more important. Now, that's all changing, and uh, people don't usually do that, put their kids in a mission school. Usually they take them with them if they can. There's enough material they can teach them out there, and sometimes it's not possible. But that's where this all comes from. Anyway, Peter, the fisherman, lived in Capernaum. And Noel and I, because of you guys, were uh, privileged to go and actually walk in that synagogue. And we went over to see uh, where Peter lived. And I was imagining where his mother-in-law, what bedroom she was in, and, and what Jesus did to raise her up from her sickness. And it's just a neat thing to see uh, what, it, what it possibly would have looked like. And you didn't get to see it because that big dome was over the top of it in that aerial picture. We will see why Jesus wanted to keep his healing ministry low-key. He will be inundated with people seeking physical help, uh, not so much for his spiritual healing, just like people do today. People seem to be more excited, more exuberant about coming to Jesus for physical healing than they do spiritual healing. Now, that's just my personal observation. 
Jesus didn't want to get so inundated with physical healing because the only reason he did that was to show, I am the Messiah. What you need from me is spiritual healing. That's what the problem is. That's what you really need. But everybody's focused on the physical, and you would too. If somebody was in town who would be able to heal anybody that came to him or cast out a demon to anybody that came to him or her, everybody would go, and, and sick people from all over the place would come and get healed. And that's what happened to Jesus. In verse 15, Jesus simply touches the hand of the feverish woman, and the fever leaves her. Luke said he rebuked it, and it left her. Jesus was in the synagogue just prior to this, and he had cast out a demon out of a man. And it is still the Sabbath when he goes to Peter's house, and there he heals Peter's mother-in-law, also on the Sabbath. And he got into lots of trouble with Jewish leaders for these events. Jesus, who do you think you are healing people on the Sabbath? It's a holy day. You don't do work like that. And Jesus said, yes, you do. And we'll, we'll learn more about that. I want you to notice especially that the woman was immediately healed. There was no therapy classes. There was no aftercare. She didn't have any, any pills you know, prescribed to her. When Jesus healed somebody, it was immediate. It was permanent in that healing. And not that they wouldn't die later, but it was permanent for that healing. And also, she had immediate strength. She had been given strength in her healing so that she got up, and Matthew says, served Jesus. And there's a lesson here, and probably the greatest lesson of our time together this morning. And the lesson is that Jesus makes us well for a purpose. If Jesus is going to make you well, it's always for a purpose. And that purpose is to use our energy and strength to serve him and his cause. Why else would he make you well? Jesus doesn't give you strength for the day. He doesn't give you healing from disease. He doesn't make you strong so you can waste it on yourself. Jesus has a purpose, and this woman did it. She recognized he did something for me nobody else could do, and he touched me, and I made well. I've been healed, and in that healing, it moved her to serve Jesus Christ. So the issue we have to ask ourselves is, what am I doing with my strength? When we pray for somebody and Jesus heals them, what's that person going to do with their strength? Are they going to do what a lot of people did in the, Old, in the New Testament? Actually, it's still in the Old Testament time, but in the New Testament? Sometimes Jesus healed people, and they just got up and walked away and enjoyed their life. There's, a, there's an account in Luke chapter 17 where there's these 10 lepers yelling at Jesus because they know he can heal. So Jesus stops and he heals them. And they take off to the priest to show the priest that they've been healed, do the sacrifices so they can go home and see their families. Except for one. What did he do? Remember? He turned around. He, he, came, he didn't go to the priest first. He ran to Jesus. The others went the other way. He ran to Jesus. He bowed down. He worshipped Jesus. And he thanked Jesus for what he did. And Jesus said, weren't there, weren't there ten that I healed? Where are the other nine? Now, I don't know if that's meant to be a ratio or not. But he did the same work for ten people. Only one gave him praise. Only one said thank you. And sometimes we do that. We might be in a problem. We pray that Jesus will heal us and Jesus heals us. And we might thank people for praying but do we ever just come and thank God or take time to thank God on our knees for what he did for us? 
every healing is miraculous. It only works because of the authority of Jesus Christ. And do we give him thanks? On those times, I like to come here, and by the way, this is open a lot during the week. You're always welcome to come here and pray. And I like to get on my knees right out there. <clears throat> Not that that's more spiritual than anywhere else, but and just say thanks. When he does a great work in a couple's life, I come and I say thanks here. Don't forget to say thanks. We live in a society that doesn't much know how to say thank you. And I think we should recognize what Jesus did. And while we're thanking him, it might be good for us to stop and think, what am I going to do with my new health that I just got? How am I going to handle that? It's a good question. <clears throat> There's nine men that day who didn't really care to give thanks. Verse, <clears throat> sorry, I'm losing my voice here. Verses 16 to 17. <clears throat> Jesus casts out the demons and heals the sick, just like Isaiah predicted that he would. I want to say this about the charismatic movement that believes all the miraculous sign gifts are still for today. I am saying they have ceased, but God still can heal people. God still could cause a missionary to speak in tongues if he wanted to, but that I don't believe is the charismatic gift of healing or tongue speaking or prophecy. The charismatic movement believes here in something that they call vicarious atonement. Now the atonement is mostly focused on when you trust Christ as your savior, you're forgiven of your sins. By vicarious atonement, the charismatic movement means that the, that atonement also provides healing for physical maladies, not just the regeneration of the spirit. So they're saying when you get saved, vicariously all your other problems go away. So they develop this ungodly, false teaching of health, wealth, prosperity gospel. That if you trust Jesus and you're his child, you should be healthy and you should be with, with great wealth. They conclude, therefore, that along with the atonement for sin, you should be healthy and wealthy. That goes along with that. Because it's healing the, the sin that uh, is a part of what problems are usually about. The truth is that it is not a blanket act of physical healing. The truth is that there are, may be some healing then uh, when they trust Christ, but the ultimate healing waits for the resurrection. And until there, is, uh, until there is no claim of perfect health or perfect spirituality that is true, it can be uttered. Now, I like what uh, Dr. D.A. Carson's, Don Carson did with this. Speaking about that issue, this issue that when I trust Christ, I'm automatically going to be healed of everything else. Now, let me say, I've seen people trust Christ and God healed them physically on the spot. That's pretty rare in my experience. Sometimes then they, they trust Christ, they still have problems, okay? And Dr. Carson talks to this. He says, this text and others clearly teach that there is healing in the atonement, but similarly, there is the promise of a resurrection body in the atonement. So once I'm saved, I have a promise that my body will be resurrected, or in our case, uh, probably uh, taken up in the clouds in the rapture. Even if believers do not inherit it until the parousia, the coming, that just means coming, from the perspective of the New Testament writers, the cross is the basis for all the benefits that accrue to the believer. But this does not mean that such benefits can be secured at the present time on demand. And that's what you see. You see them demanding that of God. He goes on to say, any more than we have the right and power to demand our resurrection bodies. You hear what he's saying? 
Uh, these people claim that there's vicarious atonement. We can be healed from anything when we trust Christ. And that's the way it should be. And he's saying, no, that is not the way it is. If that's the way it is, you could ask for your resurrection body and get it and then just skip all this stuff. And he's right about that. <clears throat> all right. Somebody want to get that? All right. Verse 16, when Sabbath was over, the townspeople brought all their sick and demonized to Jesus. We learn here that apparently Jesus believes in the existence of demons and evil spirits. Being demonized is viewed as a sickness in the Bible. Today, we categorize it more as the, in the area of mental illness. And I don't mean me, but I mean the secular world. I think in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health, which I think it's 5A or something even more than that, they do have a place in there uh, for where they talk about demons, all right? It's just one paragraph, but they categorize it as a mental illness. And the medical and scientific communities as a whole, not necessarily with our Christian uh, doctors, as a whole do not acknowledge the reality of such a presence, but at the same time they cannot explain some of the things they see in exam rooms, uh, either, either good or bad, and they don't know how it happened. Demonization is normally classed then by the world as a dissociative disorder. If we take care of the issue that gave the enemy ground in our life, but we don't take care of the enemy, they will just wait and they'll attack us later. What did he just say? What I said was, Christians can be demonized in their flesh, not their spirit. The, spirit can't, the, the demon can't own you, but they can demonize you. How did they get that chance? You opened a door and let sin in your life. That's how they got it. You go out and commit adultery on your wife, you open a door, an enemy can come in, take a base of operation, and mess with that issue in your life and make it worse. You can do that with anger, you can do it with lust, you can do it with whatever. And the way you get rid of them is you confess your sin to the Lord, and you ask him if he'll send that enemy away, and uh, that's how we get free. And then we have to stay free, because even, even though you, know, you go through counseling, you get free, you're still a sinner, and you still have the sin nature, you still have to do the right things, right? Jesus saw the removal of demons as a healing for people. By his power, he could remove them with just a command. It doesn't work that way with us. We're not Jesus. We must remove the sin area that caused the enemy to be able to take that ground in the first place, and then we can send the enemy away. I hope you're listening. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, which I think you'll agree with me, was written to Christians, right? So here's, here's something Paul wrote to Christians. If it, can't, if it can't be a problem with Christians, why did he write it to Christians? And he says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Well, what's he mean? Anger is an emotion. We all, we've all been given that. Sometimes it saves our life. Uh, it gets us ready for fight or flight. And uh, that, that's, that's got a good purpose. But he says, be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, deal with it or it will end up being your problem. It will end up taking over you. And so be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And then he says, and thereby give a, and your Bible say, opportunity to the devil which is a horrible translation. That word is tapos. 90% of the time in the Bible it's translated a room or a place. He's talking about a presence. And do not give the enemy a room. Do not give the enemy a place in your life. We deal with that by taking care of the sin. That's what I told my uh, pastors in Africa 
when I went there to teach them spiritual warfare. And then you guys go out, you, you fight all night long with a demon. Finally, the demon gets tired of you, and he gives up, and the kid looks like he's fine now. He's not wallowing in the fire anymore or in his, in his throw-up or anything like that. You pat yourself on the back and say, hey, we did battle with Satan. We won. And, and they're all smiling because they've all done that. And I said, and two weeks later, the same woman has you come back for the same problem. And it got real serious. Why did he come back? He never left. You never took care of the sin issue that allowed him room in that person's life in the first place. And then we could do some teaching. So we still have the enemy as a problem, but God has given us ways to deal with the enemy, not just what we would call physical healing. In verse 16b, the Lord Jesus healed all who were brought to him that night. There is no such thing as a disease that Jesus can't heal, be it spiritual or physical or emotional. He had had a long day. Think about that. He had a long day. It was already after hours. And some people, when it's after hours, they, don't, they shut their phones off. They don't help anybody. Dr. Keener reminds us as Christians, and I quote, we should be ready to minister when we find need, not just when we're on duty. We should be ready to minister when we find need, not just when we're on duty. There's no such thing as a disease that Jesus can't heal. He doesn't always heal people, and since I'm about out of time, Matthew 25, 36, he talks about, you came and visited me when I was sick. Well, that means you hadn't been healed. It's not immediate healing. You can read that later. Remember the leper who was healed? The leper was full of faith, and Jesus healed him. Plus, he was an amazing, proficient uh, theologian in his faith, knowing that it had to be the will of Jesus to do so. That's a loose quote from uh, Dr. David Turner. I think, by the way, these doctors I mentioned, I quote, they're theologians. They have PhDs in theology. They don't know anything about medicine. You get that, right? Sometimes I think we hear doctor, we assume everybody's a medical doctor. They're not. Anyway, I think we ask for healing, and then we accept the Lord's will instead of always thinking our way is best for everyone. Paul asked for healing. Jesus said, no. He asked again, and Jesus said, no. And he asked one more time, and Jesus said, no. My grace is sufficient for you. In my weakness, in your weakness, there will be my greatness, God said to him. Which is what we are saying when we demand healing. God, you have to do it. And get mad at him if he doesn't do it. No, he doesn't have to. Isaiah 53, 4, that we've been talking about. Jesus removed our infirmities and he carried our burdens and our diseases away on the cross. Sin is a part of the cause of every problem physical or spiritual. We still have the sin nature, so there's going to be problems. Jesus will bring all physical and mental problems to an end one day for his children. Uh, I think we're close to a rapture of the church, and that healing will be instantaneous. It says, in a blink of an eye, will be changed. A blink of an eye, somebody measured that. It's one-thirteenth of a second. That's pretty fast. I, I think that'll be great. One minute, you're this. The next minute, you're perfect. Wow, that's power. Am I the only one excited about that? Yeah, thank you. All right, okay. That's the promise that will be completely accomplished when we are resurrected to get our new perfect bodies. That's what the Bible teaches. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the one. The prophets referred to Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed of God, who is sent by God. Jesus fulfills pr prophecy perfectly, and you can trust that he is the Son of God, the Savior of your soul, if you believe in him. Do you believe in him? And will you, if you haven't, 
We learn here that Jesus heals us so we can participate in serving him and his kingdom. Secondly, there is nothing that Jesus can't heal if he wants to. The issue is whether it is his will or not to heal. Thirdly, Jesus is interested in spiritual healing more than in physical healing because that's what ultimately in eternity is going to matter. Think about that. You remember that when somebody was raised from the dead like Lazarus, did, is Lazarus still alive today? No. He died again. Uh, I would just assume Jesus didn't resurrect me on this time so I could be dead again. I just want to do that once. But if he wants to, that's fine. But when we're resurrected, that'll be it. Number four, have you trusted Jesus for your forgiveness and salvation? Have you accepted the spiritual healing that Jesus offers? Physical healing is one thing. It's wonderful. It's great. And thank God so much for our doctors and for those who work in that area. Jesus is the one that heals. That's wonderful. But you get sick again. And that will happen until you die. Jesus will heal you permanently spiritually. All you have to do is confess to Jesus that you're a sinner and you know it and that you're asking forgiveness for those sins. And then you ask Jesus to be your Savior, and he'll come in and take residence in your life, and he, he will seal you with the Holy Spirit so that nothing can ever take you out of the hand of Jesus. But if you're thinking you can get in on your own good works or you want to do Jesus plus good works, you're not going to make it. It is by faith alone in Christ alone, just like Martin Luther taught. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I know that uh, if somebody is sincere in their heart and wants to believe in you and they just cry out, Jesus, save me, you'll save them. And Father, I, I pray that everyone here has done that and anybody joining us online has done that, Father. And I pray that if they haven't, they would make that decision because you're the real thing. And without you, there is no salvation. And if they try to go around you somehow by good works or some other way, they're not going to make it. We must go through the gate to the sheepfold, and the gate is Jesus Christ. And no one will come to the Father except through him. So I pray that you would convict hearts that need to be convicted about their, their walk with you, whether they really have one or not, that you would show them. And if they don't, that today would be the day. We thank you and praise you for what you have done for us. Thank you for sending your Messiah to save us. In your name we ask. Amen.